Peter, what scares you the most about the climate change challenges we face? Personally, I think the impact of climate change on our oceans is probably the one that hits me most personally. So ocean acidification is likely going to wipe out most of our coral reefs within the next two decades. Um, that ha will have very unknown effects on the entire ocean ecosystem. Um, that's not really, I guess, what scares me necessarily, as in that's not incredibly frightening. It's kind of tragic that uh, the oceans might die in a couple decades, but it's yeah, not necessarily... And you had studied marine biology. And I studied... As your, exactly. as your intro into biology, yes. Exactly. Um, so that one probably is uh, is the most close, personal Close for me. to home. The scarier parts in terms of uh, our... Our world population is going to steady at between 10 and 11 billion people. We probably need to produce 75 to 80% more food than we do now. At the same time, we are going to radically change our precipitation distribution, the average global temperatures in different areas. So simultaneously, while we are trying to almost double our output of food to make sure we don't starve, we are also going to have impacts of agriculture ranging from agriculture in the tropics being less productive because of more intense sunlight to agriculture in the temperate zones uh, having difficulties due to flooding, due to extreme weather events, killing crops, due to changes in precipitation patterns generally. And the solution people talk about seems to be, well, why can't we just farm a little further north? And certainly that's possible, but... Um, there may not know. be the soils. Well, that's the thing. Oh, great. So the Canadian Shield is now going to become productive soil instead of barren rock. So even if the weather is there for it to happen, it's, it's an entirely different thing to get that to actually occur, let alone the challenge of, well, if we warm up those soils, how much methane is released from them. So in terms of what's actually scary, for me, it's, it's that. Uh, it's how do we feed our population? How do we feed the next generation? Uh, that's an open-ended question that I think if you think too far down, the consequences of that uh, is not pretty. That's a good context for our, our podcast interview. <laughs> Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are, how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? In this episode, I talk with Peter Howard, an expert on sustainability and climate change policy, and more recently, carbon sequestration. Peter and I discuss how to develop effective climate and carbon policy, as well as delving into how biological carbon emission sequestration technology works, including how it might be scaled to address ever-increasing greenhouse gas emissions. Peter's background includes an honors degree in biology, with a focus in ecology and conservation from King's University, and a Master of Environmental Studies from York University, focusing on ecological economics and sustainability in business. His career to date has included a combination of both public and private sector experience, 
including positions as an Ontario government policymaker at the Ministry of the Environment, as a management consultant for PricewaterhouseCooper, and currently as the Vice President of Sustainability and Project Development at Pond Technologies, a Canadian biotech startup. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Peter, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad we could finally find an interview date that worked on both our hectic schedules. Let's start by you telling listeners more about your passion for the environment and more recently dealing with climate change. Well, thank you very much for, for hosting me, Craig. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. In terms of my own personal passion for the environment, it started probably when I was a kid. I, I spent a lot of time sailing around in boats and, and experiencing all sorts of different ecosystems all over the world. And, and that translated into me doing a marine biology degree as my undergraduate. And shortly after I did that degree, I was working in Alaska, uh, monitoring the health of the fisheries in Alaska. This was back in 1997, so uh, this was a, a while ago, but even then... That, you was, that see... was just about the time that climate change was coming under the radar. It was, it was. So just started. Just yeah. started. 2000 was when it kicked off, really. But people yeah, but people were, people were starting to worry about it. Um, uh, the Re-Earth Summit had already happened a few years earlier. It was, it was starting, the environment was starting to become a thing. And interestingly, even at, even at that time in the Arctic, you know, the, the, the Arctic is what feels the impacts of climate change first, the Arctic and the Antarctic. And even at that time, things were changing and it was noticeable. So different species of fish, there's more pollock, oddly more salmon, less of some other of the more cold water species. So things were changing and you could see it. And I began to learn more and more about climate change. Uh, so a big part of a marine biology degree is obviously oceanography. And I began to learn a little bit more about uh, uh, global climate systems and, and the potential impacts of climate change. And uh, uh, ended up going back to grad school to do a master's degree in environmental studies, focused on climate change, the impacts of climate change. And then you know, the rest is history. I've, I've now worked for public sector, private sector, governments uh, as a consultant all around uh, trying to find different ways for companies and governments to exist in a low carbon world. Given your experience, both as a biology and as a policy expert in both public and private sectors, what do you think are the most effective strategies for reducing carbon emissions? It's an interesting question um, because I'm I'm a big I'm a big believer that first of all I think it's become obvious recently that governments can't be leading this. So if you think of uh, you know governments, the private sector, and and uh, Joe Q public, I don't think it has been shown that governments can either be effective or maintain climate change policy over the long term if they don't have very strong support from a public base and, and the private sector as well. And unfortunately, largely, I don't see that. When you base. say not lead it, not lead it without the support or, or not co-lead it, there's a role for them, certainly. Oh, there's 100% a yeah. role, but I think uh, there is perception, uh, rightly or wrongly, that government policy is going to make me not able to drive the car I want, not able to have the life I want. And I've worked 30 years of my life so I can drive my whatever car I want. And we live in a free country and no government's going to tell, tell me, me that, what I to can't, do. that I have to drive a tiny electric car. And I don't think necessarily that uh, that governments are 
are, are, are don't have a role. They obviously do, but I think there is a real danger that if governments charge out too far ahead in this, they'll end up being slapped back down into uh, into something worse than where we started. So, and, and I think maybe Ontario, our government here, is a perfect example of that. The, there were wonderful climate change policies uh, put in place by the McGuinty and Wynne governments. You know, you could quibble about the particulars, but they they sure tried. They had a, a, a lot of policy around this, uh, and it resulted in the Ford government getting elected and all of that being cancelled. So, there's a real danger that if you don't do this correctly and if you don't have the support of all your stakeholders that uh, that you're 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 going to make a hash of it as opposed to to making it better um i think the most effective strategies for reducing carbon emissions are going to be things that have both an impact on greenhouse gas emissions but also a direct impact on the public so actually i think bc did this better than maybe perhaps anything else they have a climate change policy that was in place uh, throughout the tenure of a conservative government and the reason i think that it stayed so well is because it didn't stray into funding or necessarily impacting people's decisions directly what it did was it uh, put a price on carbon uh, the price slowly ramped up every dollar that was collected in carbon tax was refunded as an income tax rebate. So uh, that, that seems to have uh, uh, quieted Joe Q public, as it, as it were, and maintained political support for policies where they seem to be sort of falling almost everywhere else. In, in, in fact, I, I read in The uh, Economist a couple weeks ago that uh, British Columbians, when they were interviewed, didn't know if there was a carbon tax or not. <laughs> it was so Absolutely. innocuous or Abs so hidden that no well, one knew. And, and there's downsides to being that hidden, of yeah. course. I mean, the problem with a slower approach and making sure all stakeholders are on board is, of course, we're running out of time on climate change, as the, the IPCC report so uh, wonderfully illustrates. But I, I think... I think moving, pushing ahead too far just opens a space for populist governments that seem to be rising around the world to use that as a wedge to, to drive themselves into power. And, and I, I don't think there's any uh, good reason to believe that the populist governments that are being elected in the world right now uh, will be able to do anything on climate, climate change. You mentioned the IPCC. It turns out this interview is happening at a very critical juncture because three important events have happened in the past couple of weeks. First, the IPCC issued the report that said that we need to hold the increase in global temperatures to 1.5 degrees instead of 2 degrees centigrade, which I don't think most people understand. But nevertheless, they've said, if we don't, it's, we're not going to avert climate disaster. The, and, the, the interesting thing about that target... And it sounds so low, doesn't it? Like, well, it, it, it's not like, even that it sounds so low. It's that it's never changed. So I think the key part that that people haven't realized is that we've already warmed one degree. People have been talking about the two degree target for uh, two decades right. without realizing that when we first started talking about the two degree target, we'd warmed like a quarter of a degree. Right. Now we've warmed one degree. So uh, if you talk about the two degree target, you know, when we started talking about that two degree target a, a decade ago, it was 1.75 degrees more. So we've got uh, now it's 0.5. Yeah, now, <laughs> now it's a half yeah. a degree more. And, 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 and of course the so half a degree seems so innocuous to people. I mean, they, they can't even feel that mm -hmm. because it, it's very abstract. So the second thing that's happened is Yale um, University professor and economist William Nordhaus was the co-recipient of the Nobel Prize for economics for his work on pricing carbon. 
And third, the Conservative Canadian premiers and wannabe premiers across the country lined up to say they oppose the federal government's carbon tax that's coming and will fight it in court. As someone who has spent a great deal of your career writing climate change policy, what are your thoughts on how we get past the poisonous politics of climate change to something that approximates a rational discussion? This is something that I think is absolutely critical and also something that I think scientists and largely the media just get get wrong. And, and I, I don't mean a little bit wrong. I mean incredibly wrong. So the message on climate change to date has largely been about large, faraway consequences that may or may not occur, but we think they will. So please stop driving your uh, large car. Please stop, uh, you know, consuming fossil fuels uh, because uh, Palau might sink in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And that is not a great way to motivate people. It's not a great way to motivate people to do it in the negative uh, to start with. And second, if you do not enable people to connect global warming to something that's happening in their lives today that they care about that they care about yeah. you're going to have a very difficult time motivating them to embrace either on a personal level or via who they vote for and who they vote into power uh, to do something about this so i mean it, it's William Nordhaus is a brilliant man and he, uh, you know, I studied him extensively in grad school and, and there's nothing wrong in the IPCC report for sure. I think the problem has been, for your third point, conservative governments lining up, you know, Manitoba and uh, Ontario and Saskatchewan and, and Alberta. And, well, well, Alberta premier wannabe. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, who knows who on the East Coast might end up following suit. But I think the problem has been that well-intentioned governments have gotten out ahead of the political votes. And part of that has to do with this messaging. So what I would like Canadians to hear and understand more is climate change is going to have a dramatic impact on our food supply. So when you think about everything from the wheat we grow to the soybeans we eat to the, the cows that eat the soybeans and the corn that we grow, all of that, global population, and you know we keep signing these free trade agreements, so we are part of a global nation. It, is, it will be difficult for us to protect our and isolate ourselves and, and not sell or export any of, our, any of our food that we grow, is going to have to expand... Uh, somewhere between 1.5 and two times what it currently produces. So you and I were talking about this just before the podcast. So as the world's population stabilizes at 10 billion people, they're all going to want to buy food to eat. And that means that uh, despite the fact that we've managed to, to go through uh, the green revolution that, that almost doubled our agricultural productivity once, we have to do it again. And we have to do it again in like a decade. So uh, how are we going to do that? So in terms, things like that, I think are, are a clear message that Canadians can understand and connect to themselves. So we have to tackle climate change now, not because uh, the, the Solomon Islands are, are in danger of, of sinking. That's tragic. And but I want to minimize American that. But the American food supply is going to be. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it, it, even our food supply right now in Canada comes from the South, comes from Florida, yep. um, North Carolina, South Carolina, and then up from Mexico and, and uh, California. 
all of those areas are going to be hit hard by temperature increases and their agricultural productivity will slow or maybe even be eliminated. So we're going to feel it quite soon. We're going to feel it quite soon. And it, it's so one thing is more intent, more climate change means hotter uh, agricultural productivity needs some heat, but once you get into that 30, 40 degrees, it's it's not so good for the crops. So that's one thing that's going to decrease it. Second is uh, crazy weather events. Right. We've all seen, you know, different and- Look at Michael. Yeah. Hurricane Michael. Exactly. Yeah. Look at Hurricane Michael. Yeah. Exactly. Although there's total denial right now that has anything to do with climate change. It's just uh, another big storm. It, it, exactly. And Although I mean, we, we shouldn't go there. We, we could, <laughs> we an could hour debate, talking about Exactly. This. We could, we could, we could end up debating the science of whether or not that's yeah. climate change or not. Uh, but it, if you- believe the science or the scientists, then the frequency of hurricanes is not going to increase, but the intensity of those storms is. Because so, you're adding moisture to the atmosphere and you're adding energy. Exactly. Yeah. Warmer areas, warmer ecosystems mean more energy and, and more moisture. So you may not like climate change. You may not like needing to switch all your bulbs out to LED bulbs. You may not like wanting to drive less. But if you understand that food prices are going to double or triple, or that there is real uh, political stability danger associated with, with food supply, maybe you'd take that a little bit easier. Maybe, uh, maybe if you can connect it to things like, uh, you know, extreme heat events, flooding, um, and like I said, the price of food rising, um, possibly dramatically in the near future, maybe those are all things that, that you care a little bit more about and that you can connect to your daily life. Yeah, and, and maybe uh, we can move climate change off the uh, political table as something that divides. For sure. I mean, when everyone realizes it's causing these problems, then, then the argument will be how to solve it as opposed to exactly. denying it exists. Exactly. And, yeah. and I mean, carbon pricing is merely one lever amongst many. So there's uh, the debate now seems to be very focused on a price on carbon and, and whether or not that means that you have to pay a whole bunch more to drive your car and heat your house. That's merely one way of, uh, that's one policy lever that can be thrown. It's probably yeah. a, one of the more effective ones, but there are others. So And, it, and, it and the problem with nice that is that it's going to stop us from increasing the impacts. It won't reduce the impacts that are occurring from past carbon emissions, right? Now, Absolutely. That's the, it's not a direct, like, okay, if we turn it off now, it will stop. Exactly. Now we're getting into the technologies that uh, that we might require, and and absolutely, there's there's reductions and uh, adaptation and second carbon out of the climate that uh, that is probably going to be required. It, it, clearly, there are no easy solutions to the environmental mess that we now find ourselves in. So, what do you think are the most important things we can do to pull back on our greenhouse gas emissions? What are the, what are the sort of the Pareto rule of like 2080 like what what are the things we can do that will have the most impact and you can take we being canadians or we being the world or what it, what, what do you think yeah i mean this is a this is another great question because it, technologically i'm not somebody who believes in necessarily you know certain technologies over the rest i think we largely have to do everything that's on the table well i'm um, thinking policy as well Ah, fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So if you're thinking the most important policy, despite what I just said, it probably is pricing carbon. Pricing carbon is a, a, a broad policy lever that can uh, impact a whole slate of the economy. There are, of course, other policy options, but they tend to be you know, sector by sector and, and uh, uh, perhaps a little bit more narrow in focus rather than broad. I think all the technologies that are on the table are 
are probably things we have to do. There's, there's, there's very good news there in the sense that uh, renewables are now actually cheaper than coal or natural gas to implement. So yes. um, you have to figure out a way. They're to, net neutral below. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's uh, South American solar plants being built that are, are surviving just fine on, on purchasing power agreements for like four cents a kilowatt hour. Yeah. But the problem there is that even though renewable energy like solar PV and wind power are below the cost of coal, which is the cheapest form of fossil fuel energy. Mm -hmm. Fossil fuel energy is so embedded in our economy in so many different places, it's gonna take possibly decades to make that transition happen. Maybe you can talk a bit about what you folks at Pond Technologies are doing, because you're one of the technologies that may provide a bridge from where we are now with fossil fuels to where we need to get to. Could you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so you're 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 right. And the problem isn't just that we're so embedded in coal and natural gas. It's that renewables are inherently intermittent. And right. Uh, and there's not the kind of storage capacity yet that it's no, at that scale no, and cost. I, I, I have great faith that uh, storage is going to continue along the sort of price declines and curves that you see with the the solar and the wind in industry. Right. But there isn't large deployment of batteries right now. I don't think it's realistic to think that every house will have a, a battery in it in five years. Um, yeah, and there's some environmental issues with uh, the constituent yes. parts of batteries as well. Yes, right now. there there are. Um, Setting aside molten salt. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes, there's there's assorted uh, rare earth minerals that have uh, not pretty impacts on the environment. So on the one hand, you have this legacy system based on coal and natural gas. Um, which works very well. You can turn it up, turn it down uh, on on demand. And on the other hand, you have this increasingly low cost renewable system, which is great because while it's operating, it requires no fossil fuels and emits no greenhouse gas emissions. And interestingly, just bringing this back to how this impacts people, uh, renewable energy, when it comes online, almost always decreases the price of electricity. So if you talk about the wholesale market, you know, governments can get in there and, and sort of muck that up a little bit, depending on how they handle the contracts. But uh, if you look at Texas, for example, Texas wind power caused the wholesale price of electricity to decline almost 50%. So I'll, I'll just put that in there as, as don't be scared of the price of renewables. Renewables, because they have zero operating cost, they will bid into a wholesale market at prices as low as one or two cents a kilowatt hour, just because they have zero operating costs, it's pure margin. Well, so, that's why the, the fossil fuel providers uh, have been pushing so hard against them. Exactly, it's, exactly. It's not because theirs are better, it's because it's, theirs are more expensive. Yeah, exactly. On an operating basis, they have to pay for fuels, which means and you don't have to pay for the sun or the wind. Um, but on the other hand, so you, you have this, this renewable system, which is inherently intermittent. So while the sun is shining and the wind is blowing may not be the exact same time you want to turn on your air conditioner. And this legacy system that is very intermittent and can make can can spread out those peaks and valleys and provide the base load or the on-demand power that helps production meet demand in the electricity sector with an intermittent thing is becoming more expensive and is also uh, emits CO2 emissions. So Pond has developed technology where we can directly absorb the uh, flue gas emissions of coal and natural gas power plants, and indeed any industrial site, and sequester that carbon. So we are part of this emerging carbon capture and utilization sector, where what we do is we take CO2, 
and we turn it into a value stream. So we're not trying to reduce CO2 by saying, here's a regulation or, or here's, here's something you could do or here's the right thing to do. We're saying, hey, we've invented a technology that will turn this into money. So we're, gonna, we're going to take your, what you currently have a, a, a risk or liability in terms of your CO2 emissions uh, associated with it. And we're going to make that into something that earns you a new revenue stream. So from that perspective, I think Pond and this whole carbon capture and utilization space provides a really interesting bridge because now you can have your cake and eat it too. So while we are waiting for everyone to own an electric car and that to be hooked into the grid and that to be a whole big source of storage that uh, that gets magically balanced with uh, with some complicated AI or something to, to make sure the storage makes production equal demand, um, we can stick a pond system on the back of every power plant and from that perspective start uh, sucking the carbon dioxide directly out of the smokestack and turning it into something valuable. And the valuable product is algae, and its value will offset all the costs, the capital costs and operating costs of the sequestration. That's absolutely correct. So when we Which are is doing- amazing, as opposed to t having it as a, a cost to remove carbon, it actually adds profit. It does. And not only that, it has actually other environmental benefits. So uh, while we are we are taking the carbon dioxide that normally would go up a smokestack, we're, we're going to, like you say, create something valuable that can be sold. So algae, for example, can be 65% plus, 70% plus protein. So as the world is searching for more protein, um, algae are kind of a perfect little organism for growing it. So algae- So you're growing food. We're growing food. Wow, we're growing phenomenal. animal food, we're growing uh, human food, and we're doing it at a, a rate that is about 3,000 times as efficient as growing soybeans. Why don't you, for listeners, just describe how this works? Like I, I've seen the, the system and that's one of the reasons I wanted to interview because it's, it's so cool. So talk a little bit about how it actually works and how it's set up and so forth. Absolutely. So what is going on in our technology is no more complicated than how any plant grows. So if you plant a tree in your backyard and it grows, it uses the process of photosynthesis. We use that exact same process. So at its heart, the technology we use, uh, we didn't invent it all. It's been, it was invented and, you know, uh, billion years ago or something like that when when things first crawled out of the out of the ocean and and became plants the difference is that we've managed to industrialize the process so we take the co2 that is normally emitted from a, a coal plant or a natural gas plant or or any other industrial process or concrete burns, making or concrete steel, or steel, or steel yeah. exactly any industrial process that emits co2 we take that co2 and we feed it into essentially a big aquarium as the, like the uh, size of this room, this uh, <laughs> multiple to the size of this yeah. building in some yeah. cases, if we really want to get absorbing a lot of CO2. Uh, and we're just bubbling that CO2 through the water the same way you would in your aquarium at home, just, uh, you know, bubbles rise up. And, and as the bubbles are rising up, the CO2 is dissolving out of those bubbles and into the water. Algae, uh, microscopic algae, the type that we use, are incredibly good at taking up CO2. And the reason they're so good is because... When organisms fix carbon dioxide, is the, the biological term, uh, they're using the process of photosynthesis to convert it from CO2 into a sugar, which then they use as chemical energy to grow. Throughout that process, the carbon that is 
taken off of the carbon dioxide ends up being a part of the organism you grow. So almost all life is about 50% carbon by weight. You are, I am, algae are, trees are. And that means the more algae you grow, the more carbon dioxide you're absorbing. So if you grow two tons of algae, uh, approximately one ton of carbon dioxide was not emitted to the atmosphere or was, was taken out of the atmosphere, depending on how you look at it. So the nice thing about microalgae is they grow kind of like bacteria in a petri dish. They don't have to worry about roots and stems and gravity and all that like plants do. Uh, they can just grow like crazy. So inside that big bioreactor, we provide light, nutrients, carbon dioxide, uh, all of the ideal things the algae need to grow. And everybody's heard of an algae bloom. And so they grow like stink. They grow like stink, yeah. exactly. So they'll, they'll exponentially. go- Exponentially. They'll go through- when we're at our peak performance, they'll go through four generations in a day. So imagine a, a tree making a seed, growing another tree, making a seed all in one day. And that's kind of what we're talking about, except on the microscopic scale. So they'll grow like crazy. And like I said, the more they grow, the more CO2 they absorb. So that's a good summary, I think, of the technology. It's hard, it's very simple, but we've, what we've managed to do through our lighting and control technology is industrialize that process in a three-dimensional space that requires very minimal water, absolutely no agricultural land, and takes greenhouse gas emissions from a concentrated source, i.e. Uh, somebody who emits them right now. How can Pond bring this technology to scale? So it's having a real impact on our emissions. That's what we're doing right now. So we are currently building out our first commercial plants. Uh, one is with our very wonderful partners in Markham, Markham District Energy. Uh, well, you just had the sod turning last week for that. Yes, we just uh, we just had the groundbreaking. Uh, many thanks to Bruce Anders, CEO of Markham District Energy, uh, Frank Scarpetti, the uh, the mayor of Markham, who was out, and Mary Ying as well. Uh, and finally, for the, the Minister of Small Business, and, and finally to John Adams, Managing Director of the Natural Gas Innovation Fund, who also announced some funding for the project. So uh, that's going to be our uh, one of our first commercial plants. So this is a commercial plant. And what we define as a commercial plant is, is where, as you mentioned, the profits pay back the whole system. So this plant in Markham will have a payback of somewhere around four years, uh, as long as everything works according to design. We have another commercial Which plant. Which is very fast as payback. Uh, you have to be that quick. What we've learned is that... Uh, Financing first commercial plants is something that's done largely through private equity, some venture capital. Uh, they are going to demand fairly substantial returns. So to make the whole thing work with the financing, uh, unless you have someone willing to write you a blank check, uh, you're going to have to give whoever finances the plant 15 to 20% returns, meaning you have to have a four-year payback to, to make sure that all the stakeholders and all the asset owners make money and that you can finance it. So yeah, returns are high. They kind of have to be to, to get to a point where you can deploy, where the returns of the project are sufficient, that you can deploy large amounts of capital to build up many, many algae plants, which is, of course, the point. So this technology seems like it would be perfect for helping the federal government roll out their climate change policy, um, especially in the wake of Kinder Morgan. Um, if Catherine McKenna and the federal government decide to really get behind pond CO2 removal technology, and I hope they do, what would be the most effective strategy or strategies for them to roll it out or help you roll it out? How could they help you most? Uh, so I, I think they could help us 
Um, Let's hope they're listening right now. Absolutely, absolutely. So, <laughs> Catherine McKenna, I, I would really like uh, your assistance in deploying this technology. The most effective thing they can do is really just publicly get behind the technology. I mean, subsidies and everything else are wonderful, but like I said, we design these plans to have a, a pretty robust payback period. But what we need to do is get contracts with the emitters, so be they natural gas processing plants or, or power plants, where the emitters agree that we can cite our technology there, that we can take their CO2. Uh, typically, they're, we're happy to give them any kind of carbon credits. You, know, you want those, those are yours, but give us the space, give us the ability to tap your CO2, and governments make sure that uh, uh, we don't have hang-ups and snares along the environmental approvals of that process, and then let us build it. So uh, if, if governments were to publicly endorse this technology uh, and help us ensure that the publicly charged sites where this could potentially be installed uh, are behind it as well, and then make sure the approvals process goes smoothly, that's probably the best thing they could do. So we would be very happy to talk to you, Catherine McKenna. Excellent. So, I mean, this is very hopeful. A bigger picture, do you think we're going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these problems? I mean, on the one hand, you've got well, let's hope so. people, people like Pond <laughs> doing this. And on the other hand, you look at what's happening in the States right now with total denial. Are you hopeful? <sighs> um, Say yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you sort of have to be hopeful in... Uh, I mean, let's let's be honest. The most recent IPCC report is very, very is dark. Not a hopeful thing to read. I mean, I, I think you know, life carries on. Life will continue. The question is, is what does that look like for me? So, I mean, I, I don't. Despite the fact that we talk about imminent disaster from climate change, the actual impacts from year to year are fairly marginal. It's like um, bo boiling the frog slowly. Yeah, I mean, we are we are boiling the frog slowly. Um, I, I mean, I do think that life will continue. But like I say, I, I think there will be a lot of dramatic changes and upheaval that it causes. Yeah. So I hope some small portion of, uh, of reefs in the ocean are, are managed to be a somewhat resistant to uh, ocean acidification and there's still a few it's of those so left. sad now i study marine biology as well before i went in architecture and just now snorkeling on reefs and seeing them bleached out on reefs i w was at you know 30 years ago and absolutely. they were beautiful it's it's very sad absolutely yeah. so i i grew up snorkeling on those reefs and and to go back now is uh, uh is is not fun and you know hopefully we can figure out how to deal with all of the climate refugees that are, are going to be coming soon, either from low-lying islands or from um, nations that are having drought and food supply issues. So hopefully we can figure out refugee systems a little bit better, uh, and hopefully we can, we can politically deal with well, that. Well, Canada certainly way. has an opportunity there. Doug, Doug Saunders' recent book, Maximum Canada, talks about um, a sustainable economy in Canada is only really possible at 100 million people. We're at 37 or 36.5. So we have this opportunity if we can do it in a way that doesn't cause political toxicity. I, I mean, it, it's, it's, such a, it's such a great opportunity. It's true. It, it, sometimes I think about things and they boggle my mind. So uh, Western governments, Canada and the US included, have this issue where we have an aging population. Yeah, and a declining population. An aging yeah. and declining population, which is 
almost impossible to support right. economically. It's, it's just from the healthcare costs alone, it's, it's really, really tough to make that work uh, economically. You know, hence the reason all of us have had sub 3% growth for the past uh, you know, couple of decades. And yet here we are turning away hardworking, educated, younger populations in droves because, I don't know, we think that somehow refugees are... are they're going to steal jobs. They're going to steal our jobs. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> exactly. I mean, the reality is, is that... How about make that, jobs? Yeah, yeah, or exactly. The reality is, is that uh, those people come here and are frankly going to make our economy work and pay for your and my health care when we're a little older. So, yes, absolutely. I think growing uh, populations and, and there is... I think technically from an economic perspective, there's perfect ability for uh, economies of the West to absorb lots of folks from, uh, from developing economies, whether or not politically we can make that a reality. Well, is. you know, the, the, the really interesting thing, and, and, and I think good news, I guess, is that the um, desire for immigrants or the acceptance of it is pretty even across all the political parties because the conservatives have found that there's a lot of conservative voters. <laughs> That's where they get in immigrants. Exactly. Like they're more conservative than Canadian. Who oh, voted? interesting. Yeah, exactly. Let's oh, get some more of those people. The 905 so is a hotbed the of conservative. The NDP is supportive. So I think like maybe this is something that we can pull off. Absolutely. So is there anything we're missing from this discussion, the climate change discussion? I mean, everyone's focused on emissions and impacts and regeneration, but what, what's possibly missing? From this uh, so, conversation. So I alluded to this a little bit earlier. I think it's very easy for folks like you and I to get into a bit of a bubble. So talking about emissions and, you know, carbon budgets and, you know, what's the best climate policy is a very important discussion and it has to happen. And we have to have people who are educated and able to have those discussions. But it's also pretty esoteric and it's pretty disconnected from, you know, the rest of the John Q. Public. So I, I you mean think, it's for the elites? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, uh, I'm not sure I would have phrased it that way. But yes, <laughs> if yes, we, went, we went south of the border, I think yeah, that's what I it think would that's be what they would. That's yeah. exactly what they would say. So yeah. I, I think what's missing from the discussion is some sort of a, a middle ground or a third way, if you will, that gets the majority of the voting public on side. Uh, and I, I think populist movements have been very good at exploiting different areas where the quote-unquote elites have not done a good job of connecting with the public. So, you know, climate change is one thing that Doug Ford got elected on. Um, and, and he was able to do that because people really didn't understand what the Wynn government was doing or why they were doing it. Yeah. Uh, I think so he framed it in the negative. He framed yeah. it in the negative. Yeah. He was able Very to clearly. take what they were doing and frame it as... They're stealing money out of your pockets. stealing money out of your yeah. pockets. This is massive government bureaucracy. This is the government going to tell you exactly yeah. what kind of car you have yeah. to drive. And this is a free country and they can't do that. And so stop... Dollar of beer. Exactly. <laughs> we're going to give you a buck of beer. We're going to not tell you what you have to do. And uh, by the way, we're going to slice your hydro bill because all those renewables are, are pure government mismanaged. And I don't think that there's a grain of truth to what they're saying, but there is a wedge that's driven in there because there is a disconnect between um, the, uh, the voting public and where governments have been looking to go. So solving that is, I think, what's, mis what's missing. So how do we 
get climate change to be something that can be engaged with with the public when it's become such a polarized issue? I'm not sure I have a very good answer to that other than to try and, as I mentioned, frame it a little better and, and bring it, make sure people understand what it means well, it to maybe them. Maybe framing it as an opportunity as opposed to as a for punishment. Sure. Right. For sure. So opportunity is, is, is one I mean, That's what you guys way. are doing at Pond, right? Oh, you're, for you're, sure. You're not, you're not relying on carbon taxes. You're saying, hey, we, we can make bucks here out of this exactly. green, green stuff. This is, this is economic development yeah. and jobs. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's also something that's very absent from discussions all over the place. So, so right now, Donald Trump talks about conserving the coal industry. There's a kind of base of coal workers, but when you actually look at the numbers, the, the amount of people employed by, say, installing solar panels is like it's higher. three times yeah. the size of people employed by operating coal plants. So, yeah, it's an emotional appeal because the, the coal companies are giving him uh, exactly it's an emotional appeal and there's certain you know rural areas where that appeal plays well the Um, irony is most of the coal mining is done by robots now so yeah exactly they can exactly it won't help i mean how many people do you think are employed by like a giant it's easier to to switch over to installing pv panels on roofs oh that is a human thing to do. exactly that's labor intensive it's not capital intensive so i think what's missing from the climate change discussion is is the bridge between the public and the climate policy. I don't think that's been done very well. And, and the discussion, who should have a seat at the table that doesn't yet? Is there anything, anyone missing from this discussion? I don't think that, I mean, I guess you can make the argument that since the, the uh, in Ontario anyway, since the Liberal government lost the election, they perhaps didn't consult as well as they could have. But it's not like there weren't public consultations. It's not like they didn't talk to businesses. It's not like they didn't talk to the the public even. I think they just didn't do it very well. Um, so I, I'm not sure that there, there are necessarily parties that are missing. I just think the messaging and the, the way we've, we've spoken to stakeholders as governments hasn't necessarily been uh, on point. Yeah, so we have to align our messaging more effectively. So Absolutely. it looks like we're we're coming to the end of our interview time, and I promised I wouldn't keep you too long. Um, but I have a few questions I like to ask guests to wrap up an interview. Okay. So first question is, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to other people? And we'll and we'll put this list on the on the absolutely. Podcast blog. So so I'm going to give a list of uh, the depressing books, which you can read if you want <laughs> so or two not. Categories uh, and the hopeful books. Mm-hmm. So the the books that should uh, uh, make you lose all hope, and then once you're done reading those, you can make the, you can read the ones that <laughs> Good uh, combo. That, that, that give you hope back. So on the depressing <laughs> books, uh, I would read the most recent IPCC report. I'd also read perhaps Gwen Dyer's Climate Wars. Yes. Um, Yes, those. that's an old one. That's an old uh, one. That is really good. It's I, really I, I, like good. Like about 10 years ago, I read it, it was like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, a lot of what he talks about is starting to happen. Exactly. He was he was pretty right on point. Then, you know, almost anything by George Monbiot. Yeah. Uh, heat. Falls. Yeah, good Heat one. is a good run. Um, it, it, that falls into the depressing side. Then if you want to be a bit more inspired, um, and again, some of these books are going to be old, but they're 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 still right on point. Um, something like Natural Capitalism by Paul Hawken and Emery Levins is an older one, but is a really great book if you want to get inspired on what an economic opportunity climate change is. Uh, something like um, 
I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of his name, but uh, Jagar Singh, the founder, uh, he wrote a book called Creating Climate Wealth. Uh, same thing. A wonderfully hopeful book. So uh, I think I think those types of books really frame the discussion a little bit in the sense that help you understand that, yes, climate change is imminent. I have my doubts we're going to to stop it. I think most of what we do right now is sort of putting a, a bit of tissue paper in front of a freight train. Um, but there are lots of things we can do about it. And uh, those things aren't going to be making you drive a smaller car and aren't going to be uh, making you ha pay half your monthly income to uh, to your electricity and hydro bill. Those things are are real opportunities in terms of, of uh, there's, there's uh, opportunities for finance, there's opportunities for investment, there's opportunities for entrepreneurs to start businesses, there's opportunities for job creation, there's opportunities for real wealth here in this transition. Well, maybe that's part of what we were talking about earlier being um, switching the conversation from being negative to being positive. 100%. Yeah. And, and, 100%. And, and being credible. So second question, if you had the power to implement one policy, given you're a policy guy, in cities around the world, that would reduce emissions or help cities adapt to climate change, what would it be? One policy. One policy. I think, I think my favorite policy is probably uh, some sort of a carbon price and dividend. So uh, uh, emissions trading systems are great in theory. They they, every single one I've seen built has ended up with all sorts of growing pains and political problems. So you know, crashing prices uh, and all that with the, be it the EU ETS, the Reggie, or any of, any of those are Ontario's own. Uh, it's a big bureaucracy and it also is subject to political whims. So I think probably a slowly escalating carbon tax is easier to administer and can also be administered upstream. So it's uh, uh, on... And the dividend directly back to exactly. the taxpayer. Exactly. So and they the dividend see directly yeah. back to the taxpayer, right. whether that is actually in the form of a physical check, yeah. which uh, which has been proposed a few times, or... Um, it's very or tangible if it's a check. It is. It's very tangible <laughs> if it's a so check. Here's your carbon tax. Exactly. Uh, or something that is just a tax credit come tax time. So... Uh, you know, everyone is going to pay an extra uh, couple bucks on their gasoline price. But hey, all that money gets, that gets collected is not a new tax. It's actually just a shifting of taxes away from things like income taxes to consumption taxes. So sure, sure, you're, this is going to involve some structural changes in our economy, and that is going to impact the prices of things. But also it's going to mean that you get a direct benefit. So not only do you not get to see soaring food prices and everything else, but, but maybe you collect a nice little check at the end of every year, which is a, a refund of all of that. And hey, if that's on a per capita basis, then actually it's probably a bit more of a progressive rather than a regressive tax. And we've got the proof with Nordhaus's. Exactly, pieces, right? exactly. <laughs> so third question, if you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would you do with it? I think it would, this would go back to the messaging. So I think I would publish a, a massive spread in the New York Times, an op-ed that says, uh, you know, the key title would be like, climate change will give you a job and make you wealthy. That's uh, awesome. Something like that. Uh, you know, something that, that absolutely- Climate change will make you wealthy. Climate change will make you wealthy. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you are, yeah- uh, uh, denier, um, if you, you don't, though, doesn't, none of that matters. Yeah. Climate change is going to be the source of wealth and job creation in 
the next 50 years. So, uh, and with some cool examples like Pond Technologies, yeah, maybe? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> As a stock As, exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm a little biased on that, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, but I think that's what I, what I would do is to try and to try and A, get the message out because it's true. Um, the majority of the job creation nowadays are in things like retrofitting homes, installing solar panels, pond technologies. Uh, they're not in oil and coal and, and resource extraction anymore. So uh, A, because it's true, and B, to try and change that message to, yeah. to make sure that when governments look at, at things like climate change policy and what they're going to do there, uh, they they aren't out, they don't get out in, under the vo- out in front of the voting base and, and give an opportunity for someone else to, to drive a wedge in there and, and make them lose the next election. I, I'm thinking the next time I ask this question, I shouldn't say the, the Sunday New York Times because we're, you were basically preaching the choir, but maybe uh, Fox News. At I was, <laughs> absolutely. No, I, I was actually going to yeah. say that. Or the I, financial I, I don't post would, or something. Exactly. Yes. I'm not sure it would be in the, in the New York Times. It might be in the, yeah. um, I don't know, the Idaho. Daily News. It's just because I read like the that. Times, I think it's awesome. Exactly, exactly. But but uh, but no, you're absolutely right. I'm I'm not sure that uh, you know New York. Eighty uh, percent yeah. of the population of New York voted for Hillary Clinton. That's so, right. So uh, you know the, we're maybe, missing an opportunity. Yeah, maybe it's the maybe it's the the Sault Ste. Marie Daily Mail or or something like that where it needs to go. So finally, Peter, what advice would you give to listeners about what they can do to make a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative? I think that what you can do is, I mean, I sort of hate asking people to educate themselves or anything like that, because it sounds like a preaching on high, but maybe I'll, I'll say engage and be open. So in other words, if you are somebody who doesn't, believe in big government, who doesn't believe uh, necessarily in the government in restricting your freedoms or becoming a large bureaucracy, that's okay. That doesn't mean you have to oppose all forms of climate change policy or that you have to deny that climate change is happening or that you have to acknowledge it's happening but deny humans are responsible or, or however you want to, that logic goes. So I want to be the first person in the, as part of the, I don't know, quote unquote, neo-socialist elite uh, that says, I agree with you. Governments, by and large, can be horrendously inefficient. And I don't think they necessarily have a role in telling you how to live your life. So I agree with you. Good. Can we get that off the table and talk about how we're going to move this forward so that uh, we can control all the things that are important to us? And all the things you care about, everyone cares about. Everyone cares about. Everyone cares about uh, the availability and the price of food in the supermarket. Everyone cares about whether or not a hurricane comes along and and washes their house away. So let's get that out of the way and, and let's acknowledge that there's lots of different points of view on what government roles should be and none of them necessarily eliminate the potential to talk about climate change and what its impacts are and how do we get a sort of bipartisan support and understanding across that spectrum to to come to some sort of policy that that everyone can be happy with um, and create climate wealth. How about that? That's very helpful, Peter. So thanks again for being a guest today. My pleasure. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. 
Until next time, thank you for listening.